Our gracious Father, we want to thank You that on this Sabbath day, the day that You made for mankind to embrace Your presence and delight ourselves in You, is the day that You gave to us out of a heart of love with a burning desire to be intimate with Your people. And Father, it's our privilege, it's truly an honor to think of us lowly, sinful humans as being worthy of the attention of the Most High. And Lord, I pray this morning, again, as I prayed previous days, it is not me that has anything to offer. And Lord, I don't want to, as as a human, I, I don't want to offer anything because there's nothing in me, and I know that. What I have, you've given me. What I know, you have shared with me. And in the words of David, it's only of your own that we are able to give back. So Lord, I want to to submit myself to you and ask that you would speak, that all may be blessed leaving here, knowing that they've been drawn by you. And Lord, I myself too, to be brought closer to you today. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. We pray it upon us to convict us of sin, yes, our sinfulness, but of the righteousness also of Christ and the favor of a just God to us on the day of judgment. Lord, we look forward to that day when you will pronounce the sentence, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. And Lord, but we can enter in today and do not have to wait. Is my prayer now for all of us, and we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thursday night we talked about going, but not coming. We talked about out, but not in. Last night we talked about manna. And I propose to you that the manna, though as kind and as uh, suitable as it was for sustaining life, is still angel food. And God has something better for us. God promised us milk and honey. This morning we talk about the men who went in twice. The men who went in twice. I'd like to begin with Numbers chapter 13, verse 6. I'm going to put the uh, text for the most part on the screen. If you brought your Bible with you this morning, I, of course, invite you to follow along. You make sure that I'm not misquoting or mistyping or actually miscopying and pasting from my study scripture to the screen. I know this is a world of technology, and I will not be offended if I see you on your phone or if I see you on your device of some other sort. As long as uh, you know that you are following along in the scriptures, I'll be happy for you to look at it in whatever form you have it. I often take my computer to church, sitting there in the pew. (laughs) I don't know if people think that I'm uh, surfing the internet or not, but whatever you have, I encourage you to follow along. Numbers chapter 13, verse 6. The first few verses had described each of the men from the 12 tribes that Moses had delegated to go spy out the land. I'm going to start with a uh, side note of sorts. 
Numbers 13, verse 6, these are the names of the men which Moses sent to spy out the land. And Moses called Hoshea, the son of Nun, Jehoshua. I was very curious by that little detail that the scripture threw in. As I decided to dig into it, I was curious what Hoshea means and why Moses changed the name. In Hebrew, the word Hoshea, the name Hoshea, means deliverer or salvation. And I imagined that it was a name given by him to his parents while in Egypt, of course, because of their expectation or, or their hope, at least, that they would one day be delivered or saved from bondage. So the name, an expression of hope that they would be delivered. Well, I'm happy to know that in the company of uh, us here, there are many Bereans. Uh, my computer's not connected to the screen, so I will change it afterwards. But thank you, though. And I assume you'll do that all the way through, although maybe I'm nervous now. <laughs> so in expectation of being freed from bondage, they named their son Deliverer. Salvation. Moses wasn't quite content with that, and I don't know why. The scripture doesn't say. One can only assume. But he renamed him Jehoshua, which means Jehovah is salvation. And I believe, perhaps, I can imagine in Moses' mind that he wanted to remind Joshua that the coming deliverance was not to be accomplished by human strength. They were not delivered out of Egypt by the hand of man. They were delivered by the hand of God outstretched in a mighty and powerful way. And through this change of name, God was reminding through Moses all of the congregation that their deliverance into was still dependent upon the hand of God. We are saved out of sin, but we are delivered into freedom by the same hand. And having gotten out of Egypt, we are not dependent upon our own strength to get into and stay into Christ. So Moses renamed him Jehoshua. Jehoshua, by the way, is the Hebrew equivalent, the name of Jesus in Greek. Jesus was, in the person of man, Jehovah who would save. Next verse of scripture, Numbers 13, verse 25, records the story of the spies coming back from the land of promise. Forty days they had been in there. We looked at this a little bit last night. And they returned from searching the land after 40 days. And they went and came to Moses and to Aaron and to all the congregation of the children of Israel unto the wilderness of Paran to Kadesh and brought back word unto them and to all the congregation, and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told them and said, We came unto the land where you sent us, and surely it flows with milk and honey. And this is the fruit of it. We talked about how when they said those words, that the congregation was greatly encouraged, and they were ready enthusiastically and eagerly to enter into the land of promise. But the spies enlarged 
on things that should have never been enlarged upon. Nevertheless, they said in verse 28, the people be strong that dwell in the land and the cities are walled and very great. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak there and the Amalekites dwell in the land of the south and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and by the, and by the coast of Jordan. And with those words, the people were extremely discouraged. And, and, the, and the news of discouragement spread throughout the camp of the Israelites. And, and, and their hearts were breaking for fear of the challenge. A challenge not greater than the challenge that faced them in leaving Egypt. If God could have passed them through the Red Sea and drowned their enemies in that same sea, what were the giants in the land of Canaan? But as the tumult broke out, as the commotion broke out, Caleb and Joshua, we are told, rushed in. And with their voices lifted up, the Bible says they stilled the people. And I want you to imagine with me the, the, uh, the chaos of the camp. People angry, people distressed, people frustrated, people shouting one at another, people, you've seen a multitude of people go berserk. And how by itself Caleb and Joshua quieted, that's what the word stilled means, quieted the multitude by itself is an amazing feat. Lifting their voice above the chaos, they got the people momentarily to listen. And they repeated the words, let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. And there's a bit of emphasis in the Hebrew text here, because it says uh, to go up literally is to go up, go up. You follow what I'm saying here? The words go up is a Hebrew word <clears throat> that means go up. And the phrase at once is the same Hebrew word appearing <clears throat> back to back in the passage. To go up, to go up. And simply saying that they needed to go up and they needed to go up right now. You see, there is a moment in time where delay becomes dangerous. <clears throat> there is a moment in time where delay becomes deadly. There is a moment in time where doubt begins to enter the mind where it is not expelled and dealt with decisively, instantly, and persuasively. It will lead a direction that will cost the soul for eternity. Perhaps you didn't hear that. There is a moment where doubt enters the mind in which it must be expelled immediately. And no sooner than doubt had crept in with chaos into the camp of the Israelites... Joshua and Caleb rose to the occasion to meet doubt decisively. And he didn't say, no, 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 we must go in. He said, we must go in now. And the Hebrews in the imperative form emphasizing emphatically the need to do it now. I believe that Caleb's intent, Joshua's intent was to take that multitude and to turn squarely for the promised land and march immediately. Because that's the only way that doubt can be encountered and embraced is with strong resistance. Ellen White writes, I've been shown that the most signal victories and the most fearful defeats have been on the turn of minutes. 
God requires promptness of action. Delays, doubtings, hesitation, and indecision frequently give the enemy every advantage. There is a time and a place for decisiveness. And that is in the face of those who are doubting. That is in a moment of crisis where souls are deciding for or against the truth, permanently making their decision to enter in or to not. God, she goes on, wants men connected with his work in Battle Creek, she's talking about the church headquarters, whose judgment is at hand, whose minds, when it is necessary, will act like lightning. Joshua and Caleb didn't delay. They didn't hesitate. They didn't stop to study. They didn't stop to meditate on on the process and where this would all go. They saw the chaos. They saw the doubt. They said, now, 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 and they hit it. And they said the encouraging words, we can take the land that God has given us, and we must do it now. She ends with the phrase, the greatest promptness is positively necessary in the hour of peril and danger. I don't know where you are in your life. I don't know where you are in your relationship with Christ. I don't know where you are in your relationship to the land of promise and where you are at in regard to entering in. But there comes a moment in time where there is time no more. And the time is now. Adventists have been preaching for 150 plus years that the second coming is what? Soon. When will it no longer be soon and it be now? In the words of Pilgrim's Progress, if you've read the book or listened to the audio, there is a man in the, uh, in the story who's captive to a sin. And, and Christian, the story in, the, in Pilgrim's Progress, the character of the story, he's talking to the man who's captive to one particular sin, and he, and he pleads with the man to let go of that sin. And the man keeps saying, oh, no, no, soon. The story says that soon never comes. It always moves away. At some point soon, the coming of Jesus, the entering in of his people must be now. And I believe today, for us, as Adventists, and to many other Christians in the world, the time is now. We are here at an agricultural conference, and I'll make one and my one and only plug for agriculture. Ellen White talking about time. Says time is too short now to accomplish that which might have been done in past generations. But we can do much even in these last days to correct the existing evils in the education of youth. And because time is short, we should be in earnest and work zealously to give the young that education which is consistent with our faith. We, say it with me, are reformers. She does not say we should be. She does not say you should become. She does not say God calls us to. She says, we, say it again with me, are now reformers. And because time is short, the time is now. If we believed, as we discussed on Thursday and as we discussed on Friday, that agriculture is the very education most essential to those who go out as missionaries, 
If agriculture was the education that Moses needed to be the deliverer, if education on an agricultural scale was the education that David needed to slay Goliath and Elijah to reform Israel and Elisha to institute those reforms further, if that was the education they needed then, it is the education that we need now. Not soon. And somewhere there must be the voice of Caleb. Somewhere there must be the voice of Joshua. Many Joshuas, many Calebs saying we can possess the land and we must go up at once now. As you leave this conference, my invitation to you, whether you're homeschooling or you're a teacher in one of our schools, you're a missionary overseas, you're a pastor or just a parent, or whatever it is that you do, that you leave here with the information and don't implement it soon as you implement it now. You can start small, but start now. We go on in the story, Numbers 13, verses 31 to 33. But the men, the other ten spies that went up with Caleb and Joshua said, we be not able to go against the people, for they are stronger than us. Well, duh. Weren't the Egyptians and their chariots of iron stronger than you to begin with? And you've been meandering around in the wilderness for the last year plus? Well, duh. That's not new news. And they go on, they brought up an evil report. Now, what does it say here? What did they bring up an evil report of? Of the land. They brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched under the children of Israel, saying now that the land through which we have gone to search it is a land that what? Eats up the inhabitants in it. They next contradicted themselves by saying the people that we saw in it are men of great stature. And I'd like you to explain to me how a land that eats people up is capable of producing people of great stature. When you give way to doubt, doubt leads to irrationality. A logic that is internally dissonant and incongruent. When we accept doubt, when we embrace doubt, we manufacture things in our mind that absolutely make no sense. Because how could a land that flowed with milk and honey, if it was really a bad land that eats people up, produce men of great stature? And so many objections are urged against agriculture and farming. Well, it's hard work. It is hard work. Oh, and a friend of mine, when I went into farming, actually it was his fault that I went into farming anyway. Won't say who it is. I don't know if he's watching, but it's a friend of mine. He's a landscaper. Uh, Worked with him. He taught me to prune fruit trees and other things. And he was giving me books from Acres USA on farming and Neil Kinsey and Arden Anderson, if you're familiar with any of those guys. And I'm reading all this stuff on agriculture and I'm studying the spirit of prophecy in the Bible about agriculture, and I'm starting my own garden, and I'm getting into it. And one day I was convicted, as John told you earlier, and I went into farming. And I told him I was going to go into farming. I was going to leave church work and go into farming. His very first words were, oh, so you want to be poor. So what are you talking about? This is your fault. 
We constantly say, the land will eat us up. But I would ask you, how is it that agriculture can be so bad if it produced the likes of Moses and Elisha? How can it be so bad if Jesus drew so many of his stories, his teaching, and his instruction from the book of nature and the farm? How can it be so bad if the master gardener himself planted the Garden of Eden with his own hand? Do you realize that in Scripture, God spoke the world into existence, but Genesis says that he planted the Garden of in Eden. doesn't say with his hand, but it's implied because it doesn't say he used his voice that he planted the garden and gave to man the most perfect occupation. How can it be so bad if God tells us in heaven that we will plant and eat of our own hands? Oh, so they say the land eats up the inhabitants thereof and all the people we saw in it are men of great stature. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come to the, of the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers and so were we in their sight. But they already knew all that stuff. God had told them it was not only a land of milk and honey, but they already knew that the giants dwelt in the land. They knew that before the spies went in. They learned absolutely nothing new from the adventure of the 12 spies, except what they already knew before. And all they managed to do by entertaining doubt was forget that they were grasshoppers in Egypt and that that had nothing to do with God's capability to deliver them out and it now has nothing to do with God's ability to deliver them in. And so they made actually an attack on God. And this is the most, to me, stunning part of the story is that they allowed their doubt to transform in their mind into a direct attack upon God and they accused him by their statement of lying. God said it's a, a land that flows with milk and honey. It is a land that drinks the water of heaven. It is a land that God himself cares for. And they said, no, it is a land that eats people up and made the subtle but ridiculous argument that God does that to people. The unfortunate reality is that many of us here, many in our world, still struggle today with the idea of a God who does not give good gifts, but is constantly harassing the sinning soul, giving judgment and punishment and condemnation and wrath. They transformed the truth of God, a merciful God who delivered them from Egypt, into a lie that he was a God of anger. The story goes on in Numbers chapter 14, verses 1 to 5. As they further meditated on their doubt, the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and it says that night, probably all that night, they wept. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, and the whole congregation said unto them, we looked at this last night, would God that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would God we had died in the wilderness? And wherefore hath the Lord brought us unto this land to fall by the sword and our wives and our children should be a prey? Were it not better for us to return into Egypt? And they said one to another, let us make a captain 
Let us return into Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. They again in this morning, in those statements, they attacked God. They said, God, you are the type of man who takes us out of bondage to put us into something worse. They said, God is the type of person who will put you into positions where you were merely wishing that you were dead and that he had never pulled you from that pitiful place you were in to begin with. The danger of being out but not getting in is the conclusions that you draw about God. They truly would have been better staying in Egypt than hanging out in the wilderness forming opinions about God that weren't true. It would have better for them, been better for them to have never known deliverance than to meander in the wilderness and conclude that God only brought them out to leave them hanging and they would have been better off dead in sin. But my heart, unfortunately, realizes that there are people sitting in this room now as Christians. That unfortunately, I in my life as a Christian have more often than not struggled with the temptation that God in every failure of mine just seeks to punish me. That he has brought me out of Egyptian sin, the previous life that I had, only to remind me of my mistakes and to leave me wandering in the desolateness of the wilderness. And I know, because the devil exists, that you, some of you here today, still wonder if God is and will do what he said. Joshua and Caleb again rose to the occasion. They said, in verse 7, And they spake unto all the company of the children of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to search it is an exceeding good land. And for those of you struggling with the temptation of who God really is and how he really treats you, Joshua's words and Caleb's words are great encouragement that Jesus Christ and the rest he offers, he is truly a good land. If he delivered out of bondage in Egypt, then the opposite meaning of paradise, the promised land, is that Jesus is a land of freedom, that he is a land of sweetness, he is a land of milk and honey, that he is a good land. The temptations that we face to conclude that God is a God of justice, that God is a God of anger, are not true and must resist it with the words of Caleb that Jesus is an exceeding good land. And he says, if the Lord delight in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us. A land which flows with milk and honey. Only rebel not against the Lord, neither fear ye the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their defense is departed for the, from them, and the Lord is what? With us. I have to tell you honestly, <clears throat> I'm fairly human. Not that you suspect it differently. And my, uh, my, my heart struggles with their words right there. Because if I was Moses or Aaron, if I was Joshua or Caleb, I would look at this constantly complaining, murmuring, rebellious uh, multitude of losers. 
And I would question how Caleb could say that the Lord delights in us. I would question whether or not God really would delight in a bunch of people who have proven nothing but failure and unbelief. I look upon my own life and I look at the things, the temptations that I struggle with, how many times I fall, and I would, I would look at the last words there, verse 9, and say, how could God possibly be with me when I am so perpetually like that? You struggle with that? When you sin, the very first thing that enters your mind is, Lord, I know you're not with me anymore. Lord, you know and I know what I do in private. And you know that I sometimes, like these Israelites, murmur and complain and attack your leaders and doubt and want to go back to Egypt. And there's no way that you could really be with me the attack they made on God's character is the most dangerous attack that they encountered in the wilderness. The most dangerous thing about not entering in, the most dangerous thing about delaying is the conclusions that you draw and I draw about God. A word on Joshua and Caleb. Ellen White writes, to stand in defense of truth and righteousness when the majority forsake us, to fight the battles of the Lord when champions are few, this will be our test. At this time, we must gather warmth from the coldness of others, courage from their cowardice, loyalty from their treason. Joshua and Caleb displayed remarkably and amazingly the ability to stand in the midst of a crowd of people who doubted God doubted his love, doubted his ability, doubted his patience, doubted his mercy, doubted his grace, to stand in front of them and say, God still delights in you. And to say in the face of temptation and discouragement that God is still with you. Micah chapter 7. I love these words. What powerful words so relevant to our story. Who is a God like unto thee? that pardons iniquity, passes by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He retains not his anger forever because he delights in what? In mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion on us. He will subdue our iniquities and you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. See, they forgot. They forgot that they were worthless in Egypt. They forgot that God didn't deliver them out of Egypt because they were better than the Egyptians. God delivered them out of Egypt because God promised Abraham that he would deliver them into the promised land. The whole thing was based on their promise, not on their performance. So when they couldn't perform in the wilderness, what had changed? Nothing. I am the Lord. I change not. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and when? It's not based on you. It's not based on them. It's not based on me. It's not based on what you do. It's not based on how you live. It's based on him and his promise to take you, the sinful I, the wretched, despicable human being that I am, and to take me in despite who I am. Not because of what I am. 
And so the worst thing that they could do, I say it to you again, the worst thing they could do is in the wilderness delay and allow the temptation to enter in that God is not what he said he was. To conclude that because we're bad now, that God's not good anymore. Because we're sinful, he doesn't love us anymore. Because we so often rebel on purpose, he doesn't stay with us anymore. In the face of Jesus Christ, in the face of God made man in the flesh, we are told that God loved us and died for us when we were enemies. What had changed? There were still Canaanites in the land. There were still giants in the land. That had not changed. The sons of Anak were in the Canaanite land when they were still in Egypt. And Anak was still in, the giants were still in the land of Canaan when they were in the wilderness. And they were sinners when they were in Egypt and they were sinners when they were in the wilderness. But none of it was based on them in the land of Canaan. None of it was based on them, them in the wilderness in Egypt. It was not based on, you follow what I'm saying? It was God's promise was not based on the condition of the land of promise. God's promise was not based on the condition of those he promised it to. The whole thing was predicated upon his promise. You and I don't gain rest. You and I do not enter in because suddenly we become capable. You and I do not obtain eternity because we deserve it. We obtain it because he delights in you when you are a sinner. We obtain it because he loves you and died for you when you were his enemy. Ellen White continues the commentary in Patriarchs and Prophets. The unfaithful spies were loud in denunciation of Caleb and Joshua and the cry was raised to stone them. The insane mob seized missiles, rocks, with which to slay those faithful men. They rushed forward with yells of madness when suddenly the stones dropped from their hand. A hush fell upon them and they shook with fear. God had interposed to check their murderous design. The glory of his presence like a flaming light illuminated the tabernacle. All the people beheld the signal of the Lord. A mightier one than they had revealed himself and none dared continue their resistance. The spies who brought the evil report crouched terror stricken and with bated breath sought their tents. And God through Moses pronounced the unfortunate words that the Israelites would get their wish and they would die in the wilderness. Do you know the very worst thing you can do to God is to reject his mercy? I'm going to be honest with you about myself. I'm going to be honest with you about things that I have concluded being almost 20 years an Adventist. At too many times I have concluded that the worst thing that I can do to God is break the Sabbath. At too many times I have concluded that the worst thing that I can do is to compromise my values as a Seventh-day Adventist. The worst thing I could do too often in my mind is I could go home and eat Twinkies. Or eat between meals. 
or not wear a skirt, or listen to rock music, or not pay tithe, or have questions about the inspiration of Ellen White, I am telling you that the very worst thing that you can do to God, the thing which will make God the most frustrated with you, is to reject his mercy. And to define him as a God who merely seeks to punish you for your sins. You see, it was not their discouragement that bothered God. It it was not their fears that bothered God. It it, it was not the fact that they had concerns about the stature of the men in Canaan that really bothered God. What bothered him the most was their unwillingness to accept him as a God that delights in them when they don't deserve it. Their unwillingness to accept the encouraging words of gospel truth from those messengers who he had sent to them, Caleb and Joshua, and saying that the Lord is still with us. You see, by their doubt, what they really said is, God, you're not with us. And we don't want anything to do with you. And don't take me to an extreme point of view. You know that I'm saying you should still keep the Sabbath. But what I'm saying to you is that far worse than breaking the Sabbath or any other sin you can commit is the rejection of God as a God of love, a God of patience, a God of mercy, a God that delights in you even when you don't deserve him. Because mercy is the only voice that can win the heart. It is the goodness, the the Apostle Paul says in Romans, it is the goodness of God that leads to repentance. And when you reject the goodness of God displayed through mercy, God has no other means to touch your soul. No other means. There were two guys who got to go in twice. And I'm not talking about twice their physical presence in the land of Canaan. I'm talking about twice Caleb and Joshua first entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ that was permanent and allowed them the second opportunity to enter into that physical land. They entered in twice. Entering into Jesus and his rest, they found the natural result of that entering in, which was the promised physical land. Because they believed on him, because they trusted him, because they embraced him for who he was, the land came with embracing him. Numbers chapter 14, verse 24 says, But my servant Caleb, because he had another spirit with him, and hath followed me fully, him will I bring into the land whereinto he went, and his seed shall possess it. But don't you know that Caleb was a sinner too? Was Caleb perfect? Was Joshua sinless? No. Those two men were just like all the others in regard to sin. But they were willing to accept God for who he is and believe that God was with them. Take God as a man of his word and accept what God wanted to offer to them. Unconditional. Numbers 32.12 Save Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, and Joshua, the son of Nun, for they have wholly followed the Lord. I asked the question, well, how were these four men different? It says that Caleb had another spirit, and you could say that's a reference to the Holy Spirit, and I wouldn't certainly argue that point. But there are other ways in which Caleb and Joshua were different. 
Caleb and Joshua, for me, there are probably many reasons, but I pick four of them. Caleb and Joshua chose to believe when others doubted. And you today can be like Caleb, you can be like Joshua by choosing to believe. I know you have doubts, I know you have unbelief, I know you have concerns. You're human. I do too. But we can choose to believe that God's promise is greater than who we are. Secondly, when the camp was afraid of the people outside, they were afraid of the evil within. Joshua and Caleb heard the cries of the camp, and they ran in and rent their clothes. You see, so often we get fixed upon what's happening around us. They were worried about what was in the land of Canaan, the giants, and the land that eats people up. But the greater concern, what was happening within And Joshua and Caleb rent their clothes in horror of what was happening inside. You know, the greatest sin that I can commit is the one that I commit, not you. The greatest unbelief that I can display is my unbelief, not yours. And my unbelief has nothing to do with you entering in and and, and you entering in has nothing to do with me. The greatest thing that I can do is to doubt myself, to have doubts myself. But God's promise, again, is greater than our unbelief. And Caleb and Joshua were more concerned with what was going on inside than what was going on outside. One other note on this, a Seventh-day Adventist, I'm sorry, I do love you often get caught up in what's going on in the world. Will Hillary Clinton be president? Will will, will Donald J. Trump be president? What's the Pope doing? What are the Jesuits doing? What's the economic situation in the world around us? What's Islam doing? What's ISIS doing? What what about the immorality in our world? What what about homosexuality being legalized and, and, and the Ten Commandments and prayer being taken out of schools or out of our government? God's not concerned with what's going on in Canaan. Seventh-day Adventists should be concerned about what's going on in their hearts and what's going on in the church. There is a time where we can delay no more. Entering in has more to do with us than with what's happening in the world around us. Delay the second coming is God waiting on us not Canaanites. But Seventh-day Adventists, my friends, too often caught up wondering and worrying and anticipating what the world will do with the world outside instead of asking what God wants to do for the world inside. Joshua and Caleb, while many followed the multitude, they were willing to stand alone. They were willing to stand alone. Deuteronomy says you shall not follow a multitude to do evil. While the multitude of Israelites wanted to do evil, Caleb and Joshua were willing to stand alone. Reminds me of a a quote by Mark Twain, one of my favorite quotes. Mark Twain says in the beginning, he's talking about patriotism by the way, in the beginning of a change, a patriot is a rare man, brave and hated and scorned. But when his cause succeed, the timid join him for then it costs nothing to be a patriot. 
Joshua and Caleb were willing to stand alone. They believed with all their heart. They followed fully even when it meant doing it alone. You've been here at this agriculture conference. You've learned many things from many different speakers. And you will go back to your homes. You'll go back to your churches. You'll go back to your schools. You'll go back to your congregations. And it might be that you will start a garden alone. There might be a teacher here who's at who's a school, a conference person who's at a, at a position where they could implement change and they know that they will stand alone. It might be. But to be like Caleb and to be like Joshua, to stand alone and start what others aren't willing to start is when change happens. Recently, my wife and I and my kids watched a video about the pilgrims on the Mayflower coming to America. And we watched about the hardship that they endured as they settled the colony that first winter in the United States. And the story here is perfect and parallel because those people on that boat were seeking a land from freedom, a land of freedom, escaping a land of bondage. And William Bradford, who was on that boat, who became the governor of that original colony, wrote these amazing, amazing words. All great and honorable actions are accompanied with great difficulties. If you want to go into the land of promise, it'll be difficult. If you want to leave Egypt and go into the land of milk and honey, it will be difficult. But he says, both honorable actions and great difficulties must be enterprised and overcome with answerable courage. Today when you leave here, I want to invite you to leave as a man, as a woman, as a child of courage. If your church at home is Laodicean, lukewarm, content to meander in the wilderness of sin for, for perpetuity, for perpetuity, can't say that even if I tried twice. If your church just wants to hang out in the wilderness, stand alone. If your church members, if your family members, perhaps your husband, perhaps your children, perhaps your wife is content to not enter in, go alone. Go alone. Lift your voice in encouragement and tell them how good the land you stand in is. Lift your voice and tell them that when they're tempted by discouragement and tempted by a God who meeks, seeks to punish, encourage them that God delights in them even when they're sinners. That God loves them even when they're not worth dying for. William Bradford again must be overcome with answerable courage. And I invite you to be a man, to be a woman, to be a child of courage and to enter in. Lastly, number four, they believed that God was with them even when it seems as though he shouldn't be. The scriptures conclude the story in Joshua chapter 14, verse 6 and 7. Caleb comes to Joshua when they had already entered into the land. Caleb speaking to Joshua. He says to him, You know the thing that the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, concerning me and you in Kadesh Barnea. Forty years old was I when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought him word again, what's it say? As it was in my heart. As it was 
in my heart. Caleb and Joshua had entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ in their hearts. Entering into the land of promise was merely a secondary activity. Caleb spoke the truth that he believed with his heart. Caleb spoke the truth that he knew to be reality even when the situation in Canaan indicated to him otherwise. He knew in his heart that God loved him and that entering into that land by promise was better than staying in Egypt and was better than wandering in the wilderness of sin. And today I encourage you, you and I, today, it's time for us to enter in. It's time to exchange Egypt and the land of bondage for the land of rest. It is time to exchange the land of the wilderness and the partial, the partiality that the wilderness symbolizes for a land of full commitment and full consecration to the rest that comes in Jesus Christ. I say to you, I say to myself, God speaks to us all, come to me, enter into me, and find your rest. I want to, this morning, appeal to you. I'd like to ask you to take a moment with me to pray, and I'm going to make a specific appeal. Would you bow your heads with me? Our Father in heaven, great moments call for great decisions. Great desperation calls for great relief. And Lord, as I, as I appeal, I know that you have already been appealing to hearts in this room. You've been making the appeal to come and to exchange sin for freedom and doubt for belief. For those who you've been speaking to, I pray now that they would respond to your call. As I've shared with you this week, the last couple days, I know that God, by faith, has been speaking with you. I know that some of you in this room are struggling with the real identity of Jesus Christ and often question the reality of the promises that he has given and view them as something so far off into the future that it seems impossible to obtain them. A very specific appeal this morning, and I ask you to think carefully. If you this morning have not yet let go of the land of bondage, living in Egyptian sin, but today want to embrace the rest that Christ offers. I want to ask you to slide out of your chair and come to the front here and say, Lord, I come. Just slide to the front and say, Lord, I'm tired of Egypt. I'm tired of unbelief. I'm tired of my bondage. I want to come to you. I want the milk and honey. I want the land of rest, the land of promise. Just slide to the front here. 
you're in Egypt, listen carefully, not for everybody. Make sure it's for you. Living in Egypt, living in my sins, Lord, I want to exchange bondage for freedom. I want free from my sin. Be careful with appeals. It's not for everybody. Don't follow the multitude to do good. The second appeal, you've come out of Egypt, but you right now are wandering in the wilderness. Partial. Partial faith. Partial obedience. Partial trust. Partially questioning God as a God of love. Partially distrusting Him. And today you want to leave the wilderness and come fully, completely, wholly into Him. You're saved from Egypt by His promise. You're not saved from the wilderness by your own efforts. You're not saved by your works, by your strength, by your power. No partiality. You're saved from Egypt by His power. You're saved from the wilderness by the same power to be brought into by His grace. Laodicean we are. A church indifferent. But Jesus appeals to the church. Come. And I will exchange with you your garments and give you mine. Whole and clean. Anybody else want to leave Egypt? Come to Canaan. Tired of the wilderness. Wandering, meandering, lost. 40 years you've been going to and fro, eating manna when God wants to give you more. Tired of it. Lord, I want in. Got friends who've been discouraging you, friends who've been tempting you, saying we can't do it. The giants are in the land. And you want to stand alone and say, Lord, with them or without them, I'm coming in. I'm coming in. Anybody else? Don't delay. Today can be the day. Eternity starts now. The promise is to enter into Christ. Heaven starts today. Life eternal starts today. Don't delay. Anyone else? Anyone else? Don't delay. I want to thank you for your courage. I want to thank you for your desire. And my prayer for you that God will bring you in. You still feel weak. You still feel uncertain. It's not based on you. It was always based on God. And what God began, the Bible promises, He is also able to perform. And finish in you what He started in you. It's based on Him, not on you, and not on me. Father in heaven, thank you so much for Jesus. I thank you that you delight in mercy. That sinners, when your enemies, you died for. That you long to set us free. Free from our doubts. Free from distrust. Free from the lies of the devil that tell us that you are not worth believing in. That you are a cruel God who delights in justice when you are in reality a God, a God of love that delights in saving those who are lost. Father, we thank you 
that you are a land of promise, a land extremely good, a land we can obtain and find peace. Blessed be your holy name. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.